Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined by a special guest this week, Deacon Nicholas Kotar. Deacon Nicholas, thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure, and thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. I <laughs> well, I, I have the benefit of having uh, heard you on some other podcasts. Uh, if, <laughs> if anybody in our audience out there is fans of uh, things coming out of Ancient Faith Radio, uh, their podcast groups, you've probably heard uh, Deacon Nicholas on more than one of those shows, including um, some that he he, re- he records himself. But if you're a Tolkien fan and you, had, and you spent some time with there, you've certainly heard him. And so we wanted to have him on. Deacon Nicholas has been uh, involved in classical education um, for a long time as a student and now as a, as an, a, a lecturer um, yep. and has also contributing to the ongoing great conversation with some works of his own and some translations. So uh, thank you for being with us. Ah, it's a pleasure. Uh, Deacon, for those of us who aren't uh, as familiar with your background, uh, kind of give us a little bit about how you you know, your own educational background. And um, I know your family has been involved with classical education for a long time and, and kind of where that took you uh, as you in your adult life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it's a long story. Um, I could go on for hours, but uh, I'll try <laughs> to try to make it like a fairy tale. It was like a fairy tale in a lot of ways. Both sides of the family come from come from Russia, emigrates through different, uh, for those who know the history of it, they come through, through different paths. My dad comes through the post-World War II emigration and my mom's family uh, was uh, traveled all across Russia and through into China with the White Army during the Civil War, right after the revolution. Um, so, two uh, interesting waves of Russian immigration get joined together in San Francisco, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the, the <laughs> spirit of the Russian immigration at that at that point, especially this is what eighties the eighties uh, early eighties was still um, the spirit of sitting on suitcases. Is how they described it. Any day now, the Tsar will come back. Uh, Holy Russia will stand on her <laughs> two feet, and we will rush back to our ancestral holdings, uh, where we will once again gloriously um, revel in Russian culture the way it must be reveled in. Uh, and you, you laugh, but in all seriousness, this is this is the spirit I was raised in, and it took me a while to realize that this was um, idealized uh, history mm-hmm. and not not the real thing. Um, but uh, in that, in some ways that sort of dream is very conducive to raising a child because it didn't leave me disillusioned with the past. It left me with a lot of love for it because it was, it, it felt like a story and it fit very well with the fairy tales that, that I grew up with and that my, that my uh, parents raised me on. But um, it all went very naturally into, into uh, a situation where I was raised speaking Russian first, even though I was born in San Francisco. I, I spoke my first English word when I was four. And by the way, my kids are the same way. We're now the, they're the fourth generation of Russian speakers first, uh, even though mm-hmm. they're third generation Americans. Um, nice. So yeah, fully bilingual and uh, intending on keeping it that way. And uh, my parents, because they were so, you know, sitting on suitcases, sending my kids to sending their kids, me and my sister to school was out of the question because that would be a completely different kind of dream. Not a very mm. good one. This was San Francisco and right. it was it's not as bad. It wasn't as bad back then as it is now, but certainly wasn't the best place to raise, raise children. Um, so they, we were homeschooled initially, but my mother likes to tell the story and see if you follow the logic of it. I still can't, the logic escapes me, but basically she says, that she taught us with a, with a great deal of uh, pleasure until we got to the point where we became more intelligent than she, so she couldn't teach us anymore. <laughs> so what does she do? She opens a school so that she could teach other kids. 
That's as right. well as us, right? So uh, the logic there completely escapes me. Um, <laughs> but whatever, it worked really well. This was St. John of San Francisco Orthodox Academy, which was founded in 1994 uh, by my parents and a few other um, very uh, enthusiastic and, well, you know how Russians like pain, um, <laughs> or at least that's the that's the uh, that's what people think of us. Well, it certainly was true for these families who decided to to try this thing that nobody had been trying at, at that point, or very very few people had. Uh, started with fifteen people, eventually got up to about fifty, sixty, and it's still going strong. Uh, it's it's limited in terms of its size by uh, by logistical uh, challenges. San Francisco being a difficult place to live in, and uh, difficult place to hire full time teachers in. But uh, I studied there from sixth to twelfth grade. It was an incredibly rich experience. Uh, we had drama class. We had uh, we all wrote our own things all the time, um, and eventually ended up going to to University of California Berkeley and and uh, the continuing on that on that road ever since so the uh that's that school was very much in the classical conversation uh we were my parents were at all of the early uh meetings with the big people who were thinking about it at that point and so to be here now as a, as a father of children my eldest is nine and seeing where the conversation about classical classical education is going right now is really exciting to me so i'm i'm hoping to uh give my little my little uh, tithe to that conversation by with my own stories. So, yeah. So I think it's wise to not, uh, to not argue with mom logic is just generally what I've learned yeah. to just keep, just go on. But yeah. no, I think, I yeah. think a lot, probably a lot of our listenership has found themselves uh, in some way, one of those in a similar situation, either they were a, uh, a student of parents who were trying to do this and give their kids a better education um, that, that grew into some kind of co-op or, or school because yeah. because of you know whatever circumstances it was they had multiple kids in the family and they it helped to have other parents involved or they moved beyond their own their own um, education and knowledge in a certain area and so I think in a lot of ways that's the that's the kind of undercurrent of the classical education renewal in our in our country yeah. um, you know a, a lot of it really starts with homeschooling parents that then kind of flourished into schools and now you have people just starting schools um, kind of on the second and third yeah. generation of that of that uh, of that work so uh, that's exciting and I know you do a lot of uh, lecturing at schools around the country as well um, but I really did want to get into some of the work you've been doing in literature um, uh, you know, I mentioned before that you have uh, you either are a contributor or have sh- several sh- podcasts that, that run on the Ancient Faith Network. Um, and one of them is in a certain kingdom, which uh, really kind of centers around Slavic and Russian fairy tales. Uh, yeah. This is one of my wife's favorites. So she's a big fairy tale <laughs> fan. Um, she she likes this show a lot. And so, um, you know, our audience uh, is familiar with or interested in or loves fairy tales yeah um but i think for a lot of us this these kind of eastern european um is a little bit out, more outside of our wheelhouse you know most of us yeah. grew up on probably the germanic primarily germanic saxon version yeah the grims and whatever comes down from that uh you know through the filter of england and france and other things but yeah uh so what started this project for you with with the slavic fairy tales how did that kind of get going yeah that that's a that's really interesting how it did because um, we'll talk later about my my fantasy works, but that's the my own writing for for the fantasy genre was something that was the only thing I ever wanted to do. I never really thought about going into the the translation of fairy tale space, just because on some lo- on some level translating fairy tales is is kind of a 
Well, it's a losing proposition because <laughs> fairy tales are supposed to be told live, right? They're supposed to be told around a fire. They're supposed to be told not as a translation, but as a as a direct experience of the storyteller with mm. a tradition of of storytelling that he's received from someone else. Um, that's ideally not from books, but from other storytellers who have passed on a certain type of telling, a certain style, a certain way of viewing the world, which is very difficult to do now. In spite of all of our technological advancements, this is one thing that we don't do well. Mm. And it's not. It's also not helped by the fact that the tradition itself is dead in a lot of places. Like I think the, uh, the, the last living... Uh, inherited storyteller in Russia died in the 1980s or something like this. Like, there's there are no more living links with the old storytelling traditions uh, in Russia. The Soviet Union put an end to that. Um, unfortunately, it's not just the Soviet Union; it's also the 20th century and, and just the, sure. the yeah. direction that that our that our civilization is moving. Unfortunately, and you know the the movement of technology. But um, the 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 way that the the story the storytelling podcast came about was almost by accident, but it also came from this same impulse that, that the classical movement uh, revels in. It's this, this desire for rooted community that is experienced um, with, by a lot of people coming from a lot of different places who perhaps don't have that opportunity uh, in their city, in their village, in their suburb. So they either find it in their parish, but sometimes parishes are small. They don't have, Oftentimes, especially in in American Orthodoxy, I'm, I'm an Orthodox deacon. Um, you don't often have the the cultural uh, inheritance that you would have had in the old old world. So, village churches in the old world in Russia, in Greece, in Romania, um, you will have received an, a huge um, cultural inheritance of music, storytelling, uh, ecclesiastical movements, uh, calendar, ritual, just everything about your life would have gone according to a certain kind of rhythm that would have been received, right? But you don't have that in the U.S., the U.S. being a very young country and going through its own constant growing pains, as, as it seems to me. So the parish is oftentimes not not the best place to find the kind of cultural um, soil that you need uh, to really deepen your experience of community in a in a way that that will raise that will kind of radiate outwards and into your children into your grandchildren etc the kind of impulse that right. created the gothic cathedrals right so we i've always been interested in in harnessing that and trying to arrange events and things uh, of that nature that would attract people to a central location and kind of provide a momentary experience of what might be a rooted uh, sense of community that perhaps they could then take the experience home with them and begin to sow the seeds for something that might happen in the future, soon or later. Maybe maybe their grandchildren will do it. That's okay. That's how culture. That's how culture grows. So what happened was uh, an event in Louisville, Kentucky, um, which was it was called Artifact uh, Artifact Institute. This was a collaboration between musicians, uh, storytellers, writers, uh, visual artists uh, coming together to share their knowledge. To, to teach others the technique of music, hospitality, and writing, and then to create uh, a, an experience of community through a, through a communal feast that included both the preparation of the food, the preparation of the space, and the preparation of stories to be shared during the, uh, during the feast event itself. 
dur- during this was a few days. Um, this happened at, at our Orthodox um, uh, parish there in, in Louisville. And over the course of a few days, there was a lot of wonderful fellowship that happened. A lot of impromptu singing, but with people just pulling out random things from from their back pocket, kind of flipping their phone open and looking for some that song that that their family has always sung. It was absolutely wonderful. Nice. But one one of the people there was uh, was a young lady named Natalie Wilson, who's a composer and um, a very prolific piano player and wonderful musician and mother of six, soon to be seven. So I don't know how she wow. does it. All. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, it was her idea. She. She says, I have this music. I think it would, it would be really, it's in my head. Uh, I love your, your storytelling stuff. What if we were to collaborate on fairy tales? You tell the stories, I'll make the music. And it was, it completely came out of the blue. I, I didn't, you know, I thought, okay, that's an interesting idea. But it was, it was kind of, you know, like, yeah, let's try it. Let's see how it goes. And Ancient Faith picked it up and they thought it was a great idea. And uh, surprisingly, it's one of the most uh, popular things I've ever done, even though initially <laughs> I, it was like a throwaway thing for me. Uh, because like I said, it's like I'm translating the, the translations effectively, because what I'm taking is uh, stories that were codified in the 19th century as part of this same movement that the Grimm's were part of, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. not Charles Perrault so much, he was a little bit earlier, but you know Hans Christian Andersen and all that movement, the kind of, the, des- the desire to consolidate Collect um, everything, yeah. Yeah, you know, like whatever folk you happen to be a part of, whether that's the Kalevala in, um, in Finland, or um, even what Tolkien ended up doing in the 20th century, but that was kind of like the tail end of it, right? This is the, an attempt to to give voice to a national identity through story. Russians did that too. They had a really strong uh, Russification phase in the 19th century after after the the 18th century was this kind of pandering after everything European and non-Russian. But everything kind of switched back to to the native. Architectural details started to mimic folk um, motifs from from architecture in the village. Hmm. Uh, There was a huge movement in music to embrace traditional folk motifs in music as well as church music motifs into a classical music setting. Uh, and in the literary world, there was this uh, concerted effort to collect fairy tales from all over the vast expanse of, of the Russian Empire and put them into these uh, codified uh, collections that were beautifully illustrated by some of the best artists of the time. Um, some of these pictures are still uh, extremely popular and, and beloved all over the world. But in a sense, that's a kind of fossilization of a living uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of a living organism, right? It's it's a death of a kind. So to take that, you know, kind of codification, then translate it into English, and then read the translation, to me that was, you know, it it, it didn't lend itself immediately in my mind to to the kind of creativity that that I associate the creative life with as a writer. You know, sit down, create new things, write yeah. stories from scratch. You know, and so I I fought with it for a long time, but. Still, it seemed to have uh, it seemed to have really resonated with a lot of people, especially mothers of children, <laughs> as as you say. But you're retelling some, right? So it's not really just a straight literal translation when you when you reproduce it on the podcast and other places. That's, well, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting question because the that's not an easy question to answer. So the first season of in a certain of in a certain kingdom, which was the the podcast on the, on the ancient faith network. It's no longer active. Um, I can talk about that later if you want, but the first season was basically the best of, and this was a direct, these were direct translations okay. of, of uh, Alexander Afanasyev's um, uh, collections of the old Russian fairy tales. So that those are definitely double translations. The, the kind of caveat to that is that one of those was a, 
verse translation uh, of a story by Alexander Pushkin, which was a stupid thing to try. <laughs> but, you know, I tried. Something happened. It's there. Hey. Uh, uh, but season two was a totally different thing. Season two was my attempt at retelling in my own uh, verse style the epic, epic heroic uh, tales okay. of, of Russian epic verse, which is an entirely different genre. Um, and from the outside, it all looks, it all looks the same. It all sounds the same. There's a lot of the same kind of structure, structural things and movements and the themes. And, but it's a totally different uh, genre. It would have been performed differently. This, this genre would have been sung with, with a kind of harp um, in a very particular kind of chant that again, needs to be inherited and learned. And I never did. So this was my, opportunity to play around with verse a little bit and to retell these stories in not a direct direct translation mm -hmm. but in a way that tried as much as possible to capture the immediacy of the russian so the these russian epic uh, heroic folk t folk tales uh, rather the the epic poems not the folk tales are much more structured than than the fairy tales they're okay. they, they're there's a certain form that you have to you're supposed to preserve so if you see them in different collections they'll more, more than likely be pretty much the same stories with the same okay. uh, phrases being repeated, things like that. The retelling portion um, is what I'm doing now. So I've, I've parted ways with ancient faith um, for a variety of reasons. There's no, no hard feelings or anything, but um, part of it is just me wanting to try a slightly different spin on that project. Mm -hmm. So Natalie's continuing to, to make new music for me. But I've been um, I've been in conversation in an extended conversation with Martin Shaw uh, over the past few months, um, who's really inspired me to uh, start considering how to tell these stories in a, in the way that they were they're supposed to be told. So not as translations, mm -hmm. not as mm -hmm. recitations or memorizations or reading off of a, of a prepared translation, but as a an impromptu telling recorded onto a very not impromptu. Uh, technological <laughs> setup, which is a very strange and sure, bizarre thing, sure. and we haven't launched it yet. It's it's uh, we're launching next month with Natalie. I'm a, I'm about to record it uh, just today or tomorrow. The the announcement of the new new podcast is going to be called In a Certain Land, uh, which has there's a bit of an inside joke there, uh, which we can talk about if you want. But the the difference now will be that I'm trying to tell these stories a little bit more the way that they would have been told in the old days. Unfortunately, there's no audience in front of me. Um, I'm doing it mm -hmm. to a Zoom audience of of patrons on on Patreon, which is not the same. You don't no, you don't it's... get the same response from people. You can see it in their eyes, but you know it's not. It's really not the same. So we'll see how it goes. It's an experiment. It's definitely okay. more of a marginal type thing. Um, oh, that's exciting! And I was going to. Um, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but yeah, like, a lot of your work has moved, uh, moved primarily to your own site now. Yes. Um, after several years with like with Ancient Faith, which tends to happen as people's as people's uh, body of work tends to grow <laughs> and yeah. needs its own space, and so um, yeah. there is a lot there. We'll point some folks there later. Uh, uh, um, I'll, I'll make sure that this is in the show notes too. The links to your site. There's lots of things involved there, but um, I yes. want to talk a little bit about some of your other work. Um, and, uh, you know, as you were talking, though, I, I was thinking about the, that difficulty in maintaining something and recapturing it. Um, you know, yeah. I have uh, The Voyage of St. Brendan. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of different versions of it, right? And so the oldest ex extant version that exists is a Latin mm -hmm. verse 
version yeah. from I think like the 1200s or 800s yeah. or something. Yeah. But his life was in the is it was in the 400s, right? Right. And and originally that even that that verse poem would have been uh, a Gaelic Im- Imram, sure. which is like a seafaring seafaring poem. Right. And so the first version I got, someone ever gave me, um, is a very literal translation from the Latin. Mm-hmm. And it's good. I mean, you get like very specific, um, right. but it's not very poetic, right? Because yeah, you're it's a work of scholarship, not, not, right, not right. a work of beauty. <laughs> um, and so, so, so about a year or so ago, I got another copy by an Irish translator, an author, mm-hmm. who was like, no, it needs to feel Irish. Like it needs to yes. feel Gaelic. Yes. And so yes. he wrote, it's it's not in Gaelic, it's in English, but he wrote mm-hmm. it in such a way that it has kind of that, that Gaelic rhythm and feel to it. So it sounds yeah. more like you're hearing an Irish pub song or something um, yeah. uh, about about St. Brendan. No, that's uh, and awesome. then, that's how and then of course, there's been novelizations of that story and other versions to try and like help people interact with it in a way that, mm-hmm. they don't, that don't speak the original language, don't speak and don't read Latin and um, so it's kind of that same project of how do I bring this thing forward in no, a way it's, that it's, it hits. It's very, it's very important because um, there, there's a kind of almost, well, okay. So you know how, how tradition tends to, if you're not careful, if you're not constantly pushing at the edges of it, tradition tends to ossify and become something that the, the form, not the content becomes uh, a, ma- uh, a an object of worship, right? Of, mm-hmm. of veneration. And that seems to me, very much the case for a lot of parents who read fairy tales. So what the what they're looking for, a lot of parents are, is a certain kind of uh, archaic language, a certain number of these and thous, and and a certain rhythm to uh, to the the structure and to the events and to the and to the the characters and the themes that will hark back to a 19th century moment, right? And for mm-hmm. them, it's, that was like I don't know the apogee. Like, therefore, everything everything is is a is kind of sliding downwards from there. So we have to return to it and kind of hark back to it. And, you know, the, the love of the past for the sake of the past without really considering what that might have felt like in, in, at the moment that it was first spoken. Right. right. And that's, you see that in most of the translations of Russian fairy tales in particular, most of them are very archaic. They sound very stilted. They sound like, like the brothers Grimm, you know, got lost and, 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 you know, and started to write things down from a language they didn't quite understand. Uh, it's very odd. Well, if you're if you're listening to the to the Russian original, whatever the original original is, of course, because there is no original. Um, but even if you like, if you get to, to uh, some of the stories that are really old, and you can tell based on some of the imagery and some of the uh, some of the sort of uh, archetypal type uh, storytelling structures, you can tell some of the stories are very very old. In the in the original Russian, their body, they're they're ribald. There's a lot of inside mm. jokes. There's it's, they're very strange. They're very bizarre. They're very not stayed. There's no these and thous, and of course, the whole thing about these and thous is is a different conversation because that's supposed to be the uh, these and thous are supposed to be the informal, right? Not the formal. And then you know, in in English, we start to associate these and thous with formal language, right? It's right. To be the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> and in Russian, that's a very present thing because uh, you know, Russian, as with a lot of other languages, the the formal and informal. Uh, are very present and in, in in regular everyday language. So yeah, we flatten those out in English quite a bit. Yes, yes, uh, the democratization of language, but you lose a lot, right? Um, so even in my translations of the 19th century versions, I've tried to capture some of the vividness of the original Russian. And in these um, retellings that I'm doing for the new uh, season, for the new podcast, I should say, um, I'm trying to capture that even more and kind of filter it through 
the experience yeah. of being being a bilingual, uh, you know, Russian American living in the 21st century, upstate New York, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even even native English speakers, we lose a lot of the the inside jokes and the bodiness of something yeah. like like Chaucer or Shakespeare. Or Shakespeare, yeah, because unless you go watch uh, watch uh, an actual performance, then yeah. then you get it. Then the actor gives it to you, right? They give you right. the, with, with their with their body language, especially in the Globe. Um, they do that really well. Yeah, yeah, but we lose a lot of those jokes because. We just well, we don't we don't get the we don't get the um, the innuendo first of all, yep. an, an outdated innuendo, um, and and then we lose it in what we hear, what our ear or our eyes read as like um, Queen's English when it was probably yeah. sounded a little bit more like Cockney when it was first when it was first uh, right. first played out. So, um, well, I've, heard, to... I've heard one scholar at least suggest that it sounds like. Brooklyn American, which yeah, I thought was yeah. <laughs> There's videos out there of these people who are doing it like in a ring original original <laughs> pronunciation. It's fantastic. It's like fascinating to watch and they'll go back and forth between yeah. the two and the, how much like we only we also miss a lot of the rhyme scheme mm-hmm. that's in here yep. that, that some of his lines are very poetic and we miss it because we don't say the words the way they say them. So yep. Yep. Uh, that anyway, that's another rabbit trail. But uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, the, the fairy tales and the folk tales uh, coming out of uh, of Russia and this other other kind of Eastern European Slavic um, traditions yeah. uh, that you've worked with. Um, but having grown up here in the states, you you know you yourself were exposed to quite a bit of kind of the the, the Western end fairy tales. Yeah, um, I, I wonder if you might be able to help our audience with a little bit of where those things overlap and then where they yeah. kind of differ, really differentiate themselves from say sure. the Grimm's and the Peralt and those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not, not to get into a history lesson of, of, of the, you know, the, the fairy tale genre, but um, in, in very, you know, to put it very succinctly, there are some stories that inter um, interweave between the Eastern European tradition and the Western. So clearly there was at some point, some, conversations that were being had right mm-hmm. so for example like the the frog prince or the frog princess um that's the thing that's the story that appears in the russian canon as well there's there are cinderella type stories which you know not to get too technical of course you, you see those you know throughout all kinds of storytelling traditions mm-hmm. but that particular uh, manifestation of it suggests that there might have been some some cultural contact between the west and the and russia but the and you know, and you, the the fact that you you have a prince, and the princess needs rescuing, and you know, kind of these, not always, of course. There are plenty of stories where the princesses are doing the rescuing in in Russian uh, fairy tales, but you will recognize a lot of a lot of things that Tolkien would have called coming out of the cauldron of story, right? Things that mm-hmm. that either were shared or simply come out of the same um, well of inspiration that that all humanity has access to, to by virtue of being human and by virtue of being created by a, a creator. Um, that being said, Russian fairy tales are very odd and bizarre and outlandish to most people who have only been raised on a on a diet of Western European stories. Um, the things are very chaotic; they don't always make sense. We've been conditioned, unfortunately, by the by people like Charles Charles Perrault, and not so much the Grimm's. They're they're a little bit more comfortable with the chaos mm. but there there was an enlightenment movement to take the old stories and domesticate them and make them into morality tales right we um, smoothed that out quite a bit yeah yeah and you know the question i get most often from parents about sto- fairy tales is which ones can i tell my kids and which ones i can uh-huh. meaning 
what if there are what if there's a violent scene in it you know am i damaging my child and this is a question that would never have occurred to anyone outside of the 20th 20th and 21st century never i mean the stories are are bloody violent uh and they were not intended only for children they were intended for the whole village and kids were there they were you know they would hold on to the to the skirts of their mothers and they would understand only half of what's going on they would get it but you know these are these are not things that that damage children because it because it's it's a dream state. Stories are told in a special kind of style that is outside of the the realm of normal everyday existence. And in the Russian fairy tale tradition, this is accentuated by the fact that every fairy tale is begun by a pre-tale. This is a very strange thing, but um, it's a it's every storyteller has his own way of doing it. And I should have been prepared with a pre-tale, but I'm not, so I apologize. But basically, what it is is a series of bizarre. Hilarious, violent, odd, completely unrelated images, usually told in a very quick, almost rap kind of style, very rat-a-tat, that's intended to completely upend your expectations of what is what is real, what is expected, what isn't. Uh, very strange, but short, to the point, grabs the attention of the, of the listener who has no idea what's going on, creating a kind of transition point between the real world and the, and the dream world that the fairy tale inhabits. Um, which children inhabit all the time. So, by the way, as an aside, children, when properly raised, are always in that dream state. That's, that's how they interact with the world, as though it, it is a dream. And we want to avoid waking them up from that dream as, as long as possible, I think, um, because it's not it's not a state of ignorance, but it is a state, it's a state of wonder and awe, which we tend to lose mm. way too early in, in our very irrationalist, materialistic society, in the West especially, and in the East, unfortunately, as well these days. But um, so the pre-tale then kind of jars your connection with everyday reality and enters you into a different space. And in that space, there's a different set of rules. And on the surface, it seems like nothing makes sense. You know, the hero constantly makes stupid mistakes and gets rewarded for them, it seems like. Or the idiot who doesn't do anything suddenly gets gifts from above for hardly doing anything at all. Or the the sometimes the the ne'er do well soldier by virtue of his cleverness ends up outwitting everybody and winning the princess so a lot of these things they just don't fit into you know a very tidy protestant kind of moral ethic um especially i'm talking about a very particular kind of 19th century protestant morality mm-hmm. uh and that's one of the best things about it because it forces us to recognize that we see the world in an incorrect way and what the fairy tales are doing is they're reorienting our way of viewing the world and reminding us that actually the world is not what we see it's a lot deeper than the things that we see and in order to be able to understand those things we have to go kind of slant at them not stare at them straight but kind of go around and in that going around the rules of the of the the fairy tale you know when the when the when the the hero at the very tail end of the story right as he's about to win everything including his bride gets chopped up into little pieces by his brothers for no apparent reason and that's the end of the story except it isn't because then he gets put back together and and is animated once more for again no apparent reason and ends up coming and punishing his brothers for no apparent reason except if you're actually paying attention you realize that what's going on here is an entirely different way of relating to the world of relating to the world as animated by presence capital B, as animated by spirit, as animated by a, a reality that you can't see, but that you can you can feel, that you can interact with, and that you do interact with if you live 
the ritual life of the village, if you live the ritual life of the church, if you live the ritual life of your family, um, all these things which we don't have. So if we did have those things, if we were rooted in those old traditions, then these things would seem as natural as breathing. So coming like into them without being prepared properly is like being, you know, doused with cold water. It's bracing, and if you stick with it, it can be very healthy <laughs> because it reorients the way you look at the world and reminds you that don't. It's not what you see; it's beyond what you see. Those are the real things. So I think that's the, that's the greatest thing about the Russian fairy tale tradition is that it doesn't shy away from interacting with the world of the weird, weird, the world of the perilous, the world of the ineffable in ways that initially make us uncomfortable. But if, if you really stick with them, you start to realize that actually this is just different ways of talking about eternal things. Well, if if our listeners wanted to look into uh, some of your retellings or, or where they might find even some of the some of the originals in translation, like or not the originals, but the what exists in translation. Right. Do you have any uh, resources that you would you would recommend for them? Well, I've tra- I've translated uh, two volumes of of these stories myself, so I would okay. um, I would I would direct you to, to that. Um, you can find all those books on my website. Um, yes, the, those translations are not they're they're kind of hastily put together and. In the near future, what I'm hoping to do is to is to revise some of them and create a kind of more def- more definitive version of some of the most famous Russian fairy tales, with okay. um, with new illustrations by um, uh, I haven't de- I haven't decided who yet, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm looking around at, at uh, illustrators. So if anybody's listening and wants wants a crack at at Russian fairy tales, let me know. <laughs> All right, I might mean, some people who work for Cersei might be interested in trying to illustrate for you. We'll see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that's the In a Certain Kingdom, uh, Epic Heroes of the Rus, and Fairy Tales of the Rus. Those yeah. two volumes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, I'll, for everybody out there, I'll, I'll link to all link to uh, Deacon Kotar's um, website where you can find all of these all of these things as well as some of his other his other works. Um, before we jump into your to your fantasy writing, you have a few other books here. Um, and I wanted to know if you could kind of give us a little bit of what they're uh, sure. the widow of the Russian soul heroes for all time and how to survive a Russian fairy tale. Kind of where yeah. does that fall into? Uh, so those are, those are kind of bridges between, uh, between uh, the fairy tale world and the world of my novels. Okay. So um, I, from the beginning I was self-published uh, even though I had initially a, um, an agent in New York, we didn't, it didn't end up working, but one of the reasons why I ended up going indie for all of my books is um, is because you have a lot of control over how information about your book goes out into the world. So I was able to get people's attention and interest even before the books were published simply by letting them in on the very interesting and fascinating world of of Russian folk history and you know the the rituals of the villages and. Um, the, the kinds of things that no longer exist any anymore in Russia, unfortunately, um, or have been preserved in very small doses by uh, by the emigre community, who of course are losing them as well because many of them don't even speak the language anymore. But um, these were basically blog posts that I kept people's interest up. I would I would find some random interesting things in the Russian internet that didn't exist in English, and I translate them and I release them as blog posts on my on my website. Um, thereby hope, hopefully attracting people to my website so that they could then, you know, if you like this historical tidbit, here's how I put it into my novels. Um, so the uh, initially they weren't even meant to be books. Um, they, it was just 
tidbits of information that I gathered, but I thought, why not just put them together and see, see what happens. And the, the one, how to survive a Russian fairy tale, that's, that's a kind of a meta book. It's, <laughs> It's the one talking. It's it's the one that talks the most about why the Russian stories are the way they are. So you, you get into the details of, you know, why why there's a hut with chicken feet and who Baba Yaga is and all these all these kind of fun things. Um, that one that one's a, a perennial favorite. People people enjoy diving into the into the weird weird world, and it's you know it's told with a bit of humor and kind of yeah. So that that's where those books fit. But I think they're most Good. enjoyable for people who've read my novels because the the point of those you know, little chapters is to kind of uncover things that are really hinted at uh, in, in the world of the novels, because okay. if, you know, as you know, when you're, when you're writing a novel, you can only include the ruins of stories like as Tolkien does in, in, in his mm. landscape in his story landscape, he has all in Lord of the Rings, there's constantly ruins everywhere. Right. But those are, those are ruins of stories, which he then, you know, which Christopher then uncovered for us in his 10, 10 volume history of middle earth. Um, but that's, you can't really, stop the flow of the story to tell those tidbits even right, if people are right. interested so um they're just hinted at in the novels and if you want to know more about them that's where those little books are so is the so so that i mean that leads me to some questions i have for you about your your fantasy work and you have i think what's six or seven in seven. the series seven yeah, in the series now seven right now yeah mm-hmm. um is the is your fantasy world then closely tied to kind of the russian folklore as well yeah okay oh it it, it even more than I thought. So uh, right now uh, I'm in the process of finishing the first ever book club for my books uh, with my Patreon community, which was a wonderful experience uh, that I resisted for a very long time, but uh, because, you know, all authors are ashamed of their own work, which they shouldn't be, but we are. Uh, And, you know, rereading my first novel, The Song of the Syrian, together with uh, some people who, you know, appreciate my work um, and, and are not shy to share that appreciation allowed me the freedom to really kind of enjoy the reading as a reader, not as a critical writer going over my, my previous work and thinking, how could I have done this better? But just because that doesn't make for good uh, book club <laughs> discussion. So I, I was forced to, uh, to, to read it as a reader. And I was shocked at how deeply the world of Russian fairy tales was inside me so that when i was writing this first novel which was not intended really to be a a kind of novelization of russian fairy tale themes they came out anyway they're all over the place and as i was rereading it i realized oh that's that story okay that's that story well that's that story and and i realized how much of my own childhood uh reading and and watching of old russian fairy tale movies and cartoons actually uh, also (laughs) uh influenced this so in the marketing stage of of talking to people about the books, I'm very forward about talking about the Russian fairy tale aspect of it. I I tell people that you know this novel is is a kind of loose retelling of this particular Russian fairy tale, uh, and because that that tends to play well with a certain kind of uh, fantasy audience, and it is true, but it's kind of putting the cart before the horse, or I don't know how. Like it's it's kind of revisionist history because in the writing of it. Yes, I was thinking about, about Russian fairy tales, but I was much more interested in, in kind of following Tolkien and writing an, an epic fantasy novel. But the thing that came out of me was a lot more fairy tale than it was epic fantasy. <laughs> so, which makes for interesting reviews. Sometimes people are like, this is not what I expected <laughs> because there's a lot of like the Russian fairy tale weirdness in these stories. Okay, well, the the the, the series is kind of fall is under the the heading of uh, Raven Sun is the... Yeah. Is the name yeah, of the that's series? The, that's the series name. Yeah. Um, starting with the Song of Siren, I think, right, is the first book. Yeah. 
just give the audience then a little bit, kind of a broad strokes, like what's the what's the landscape of of this fantasy world and this uh, storyline, so they can feel kind of maybe what they're looking for. Maybe you can yeah. help them not be so confused when they dive yeah. in. <laughs> yes. Well, um, yeah. A lot of writers write the book they wish someone else had written so they could enjoy reading it. And for me, it was always, so the most vivid reading experience outside of Russian literature, which is a different thing. And as a bilingual person, it's hard to explain to some, to people who don't have two languages. You're actually two different people uh, when you have two or, or multiple languages. And in when you speak in one language, you're, you're a very different person than when you speak in the other. So for me, the experience of Russian literature, which for so many, uh, you know, Western people is very formative in their kind of philosophical or spiritual or or cultural upbringing. For me, that's a that's kind of almost a separate thing. It's it's very much a part of of my heart and who I am, but it's not as connected to to my experience as a writer because I write in English, right? So I love Dostoevsky very deeply. His kind of psychological brilliance and analysis of, of human motives is, is something that I think about a lot when I write, but I don't consciously try to emulate him. However, Tolkien, what he did with the fantasy genre by creating this thing that had never been really been done, by wedding a medieval uh, storytelling technique with a very modern form mm-hmm. of the novel uh, in in a way that shouldn't work. The the experience of reading that was for me transformative, as as it was for so many people. I mean, I've read it twelve times now, and every time it's a completely new and, com- and, and hmm. equally enriching experience. I read the uh, the Chronicles of Narnia before that; they were also very very interesting, informative, and I loved them. And I loved the the portal fantasy aspect of it and going into hmm. a different world. Uh, I also really liked the uh, the Chronicles of Prydain by Lord Lloyd Alexander and some other some mm-hmm. of the other young adult kind of things that involved sometimes involves portals sometimes just involved being in a a, a mythic space that mm-hmm. was informed more by the laws of mythology than than by the laws of science of, of rationalistic Newtonian science which is what we're pretending that we live in in the now <laughs> but um, it tends, you know, to, be sci- tends I, to be sci-fi right you get you get kind of more right. of that feel in the sci-fi genre definitely definitely although that's changing now and that can yeah. be a whole different conversation like there's a, some of the most existentially and philosophically rich uh, literature that's being written right now like the stuff that's really searching for meaning is is uh, sci-fi not fantasy okay. Okay. um the current the current fantasy uh world as far as far as i can tell is not it's it's kind of on its, in, in its decline there's not a lot of stuff that's really um engaging with the really deep mythological questions like mm. tolkien did a lot of it is just repeating tropes and, and kind of yeah yeah rehashing. Car- a caricature of yeah I mean, it's not intended to be a caricature, but it, it it's uh, what it's trying to do, what a lot of modern fantasy is trying to do. And I'm trying to say this without judgment. What it's trying to do is trying to create a very cozy kind of atmosphere that recalls a reading experience of something that was better. Mm. Uh, that you're trying to, and which is, I mean, we could talk about the, the religious and sort of ethical ramifications of that kind of fiction ad nauseum. I do. I like to talk about that, but <laughs> people don't like to listen, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but for for me as a writer... You know, the experience of, of reading Lord of the Rings for the first time is something I want for the Russian mythical space. And mm. it doesn't exist in Russian. There's a vast literature of Russian fantasy. It's, most of it is terrible. Most of it is is very pagan, very badly written, mm. very not literary, not not concerned with the beauty of literature, you know, the, not concerned with with the finer things, with with really trying to grapple with what it means to be human. 
Um, so I'm, you know, I'm bold. I'm, I'm brazen. I want to write what Tolkien did for Britain. I want to write it for, for the Russian space, I want, but in English. <laughs> so that was, that's how I, that's how I entered into this. I thought, okay, what Tolkien did, I'm going to reach towards throughout my life. Not that I'm going to ever be able to do it, but this is where I want to exist. And for me, that's as much a theological question as it, as it is a literary one. So the, the world of the novels came out of a, a kind of theological thought. What if I were to write something like the Silmarillion, which in a lot of ways is a kind of Old Testament to the Lord of the Rings. Um, what if, what if the chosen people were not the Israelites, but were a kind of pagan proto-Russian people mm. with, with Russian uh, historical and cultural characteristics that, that were more familiar to me. And what, what would a covenant with the most high look like in that kind of alternate world? And that's where I started, but because the writing of the, of the novel actually came out of, out of a personal desire to um, leave my impressions on paper after going to the Holy Land for the first time. Hmm. So initially it was, a, it was a spiritual impulse, but I've always wanted to write fantasy. So it, these two things kind of inter, intertwined to create this strange story uh, that goes on for, for six books. And now the seventh book is a, is a bridge to a new series that is grappling with a lot of the same kinds of themes that, that Tolkien's hobbits are grappling with, but in a world that is a lot less Northern and a lot more Slavic. So, okay. Something like that. Okay. Um, well, like I said, for the audience, you can find all these things on, on Deacon Kotar's website, which we'll put in the links, um, along with many, many other things he offers there. Uh, yeah, I do courses, a lot. <laughs> courses for people who are, are looking to write. Uh, like I said, he mentioned he's he's available to come speak. I know you've, you speak at, at schools and, and co-ops and things around the country yep. each year. Yeah. Um, so if you're, if your school is looking for somebody, I would, I would recommend it. Um, and so we'll make sure that's all captured there as well. Uh, so in addition to the things that are going on your website, I know you're involved with some kind of collaborative efforts going forward. Um, yeah. some of our audience may have seen that. I know it got posted several times, but talk to us a little bit about this, uh, this, this other fairy tale space that you were, yeah. you were part of. Well, John, Jonathan Pajo suddenly got an got a uh, an unexplained itch. It's very explained, <laughs> of course, but um, to write fairy tales um, and to retell classic fairy tales in the way that they're supposed to be told. So it's so it's this kind of postmodernism does postmodernism to postmodernism, <laughs> uh, and and uh, what comes out on the other side is something that's simultaneously very modern and very medieval. And uh, he he asked me to help with the on the production side and preparation side for this, for the first book, which was uh, a, an illustrated retelling of, of uh, Snow White, which your audience probably knows the prob- probably have, you know, most of them have actually contributed to this <laughs> Kickstarter, which was a fantastic success. And the books are hopefully going to be coming out over the next few months or so. But part of the um, aftermath of that was uh, a wonderful idea that uh, Jonathan had was to take advantage of this moment, which is seeing a lot of storytellers, kind of enter into this simultaneously ancient and new space of telling stories that are old, but in a new way, in, in a way that can engage people simultaneously who are very modern, but also are hankering for that, that ancientness, that, that, that's something that was lost. Right. So he's, uh, this isn't official yet, but I, we have announced it so we can talk about it, but there's going to be an anthology of uh, fairy, fairy tale retellings that are connected to the Snow White release 
um, of various fairy tales by some of the best story- storytellers out there right now, including Martin Shaw, including Paul King's North, Vesper Stamper, who's a fantastic illustrator and storyteller. Mm. I'm going to be contributing a story. Uh, Richard Rowland's going to be contributing a story. Okay. And I'm going to be running this anthology, um, which is going to be illustrated and is going to be available hopefully next year as as part of the rising tide of, of new storytelling energy. But to have all of those people in the same place, uh, writing for the same publication, I yeah, it was a great, so it was a great list. Yeah, I was excited. Yeah, right. I mean, it's. <laughs> I'm um, very, very excited to see what happens. Yeah, it seems like it'd be the front, the front wave of a whole new, re- like, like you just said, making these stories fresh again, right? Bringing them back up into well, the consciousness. And- definitely, and I think that it's the time is right to basically start thinking about how we can not simply consume these stories and wait for someone else to create them, but really to start pushing into the space of the, of the creation and the production of these things. That's something I'm very interested in. That's what St. Basil's writing writers uh, workshop is about, uh, which okay. is a work uh, of writers workshop that I run with Paul Kings, North and Jonathan. Uh, there's going to be a publishing arm attached to it. It's not officially launched yet, but we're so basically in the, to give you kind of a microcosm of it, when I go to Amazon or to Goodreads to find books to read, the way most people do is they find a book that they've read before and they look into the recommendations that the algorithm gives, which for most people that are in the modern storytelling space tend to be very effective. Like if you read this book, you're going to like this book. The algorithms mm-hmm. are generally pretty good at predicting it. The problem is that this kind of new storytelling thing is doesn't have an analog, right? So right. Um, there's not a lot of writers in it. So what I am hoping will happen is in five, 10 years, when any one of your listeners goes on Amazon or whatever Amazon is in, or Goodreads is in 10 years and wants to use you know, the technology that we have to find a, a book that would be similar to the thing they read before. What I'm hoping is that the algorithm will automatically populate those areas with books that we've written and published, this, the, this group that is now thinking hmm. and, and moving forward, which I think will probably include some of your listeners who are interested and who are tinkering with stories right now. Now yeah, is the time yeah. to really start working on the craft and start working on um, coming up with 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 new ways of telling these these old tales because there's definitely an audience for it. Yeah, I saw the Saint Basil workshop on your site as long as along with a couple of other um, writing uh, courses or, or uh, yep. webinars and things on there. So uh, please, if you're if you're a person who's interested in telling stories uh check these out as well these are some great ways to get uh, get some help get some feedback um and, and get some community because yeah, there's, there's a group say, of people that are doing it together That's yeah connect with this group of people who are trying to tell tell good stories um and help each other yeah. out so well hopefully uh also you know once once we that anthology starts moving forward we'll get a get a group of you back on to talk about kind of that process and the, the stories that you're planning on telling and all those kind of fun things yeah. um, that'll be really interesting because yeah, i imagine that just putting it together is, there's going to be a lot of interesting things that come out yeah of the process, yeah so. okay well then you you can help me round up all these yep. all these yeah, creatives we'll, <laughs> we'll get them because the they are definitely they're difficult to to wrangle you know that's right all that's very right. creative <laughs> we'll be recording this at like 2 30 in the morning yes. to get everybody in the same place but yes. that's okay we'll, we'll get it done we'll do it um, all right well, uh, Deacon, uh, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, like I said, we'll point everybody to your website. I'm glad we were able to kind of get this one scheduled because, uh, as I said, I've, I've known of you for several years now and, uh, you're, uh, have fans in our household. And so it was fun Excellent. to get you on and talk about this a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a pleasure. <laughs> and open up our, our kind of folk tale and fairy tale window a little wider, uh, to the east. Yeah. So thank Let you. Let the light in. <laughs> All right. Excellent. 
thank you all for joining us on a, another episode of Quiddity, where we refresh ourselves as systems of learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Uh, you can send your comments and questions to podcast at circeinstitute.org. You can also join the Quiddity conversation on the Circe Circle at circe.circle.so. Join us next week for another episode and be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.